Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Safe House, brought to you by The Safe House Initiative. I'm Jeff Edwards, co-chair of The Safe House Initiative and your host for today's podcast. I've heard it said, never let a good crisis go to waste. I think that's really appropriate for today's conversation. In fact, we're going to have a two-part podcast series to discuss this statement with two gentlemen from a Safe House Initiative contributor, White Took. Today, we're going to talk with Rob Stewart, the CEO and founder of the company, who is also a practitioner. Rob has helped prepare and respond to literally thousands of cyber and ransomware incidents over the course of his career, and we're delighted to have him share his experience with us. By the way, Rob is the one who said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks very much, Jeff. Appreciate you having me. I'm glad to have you. So why don't you tell a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, and how you ended up in this particular space, and then we can kind of dig into uh, how you go about doing it. Yeah, um, you know, I've had a bit of a, an interesting career and, and always seem to be around very bad days in crisis. I uh, started my career working for uh, Department of National Defense here in Canada, uh, moved on into the gaming industry and actually had some uh, experience working with the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, which would be our version of the ATF up here in Ontario and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um then I was fortunate enough to move into global finance um, in, a, in an operations role. And what I was really understanding there was what it takes to have technology infrastructure to support a global finance organization. But also I was really seeing how money moved around the world and, and how controls, what controls were in place for that money movement. What really changed for me was I had the opportunity to move into a major incident management um, in 2013. And uh, I became addicted, um, never knew what was going to happen. But when my cell phone went off, I knew it was bad and, you know, got a great opportunity to kind of lead incident recoveries and crisis management scenarios. And, you know, I was like a kid in the candy store. I could grab whatever expert I needed to pull on a call to, to bring the right people together to come up with a solution. And it became a bit addicting for me. Um, where it kind of changed for me was actually I, I did that for uh, about seven years and, and did thousands of incidents. And, and anyone that's dealt with crisis before knows that can be a, a bit taxing. Um, got a bit burnt out and said, you know what, maybe I'll try uh, cyber threat intelligence and, you know, call it fate, call it uh, whatever you want. But actually, my my first week was um, one of the largest breaches in North American history and, uh, you know, got to learn really on the job how to apply that major incident mindset. Um, to helping with cyber resilience and and keeping the lights on and bad guys out. When you show up on the scene of the crime, so to speak, what phases are there? I mean, how do you break it down? How do you how do you tackle such a huge, uh, scary problem? You know, it's a very interesting. You know, when you talk about how you can slice and dice and, and define how what an incident timeline is, there's lots of many different ways to do it and different standards. But you know, for me. One of the things I think is really exciting is that, you know, any organization can kind of have the same mindset I did when you when you go into an incident. And I'm really looking for three things. There's three things I need to accomplish or, or have on my on my list of to do's when jumping into an incident. Mm-hmm. The first one for me is identify the scope. You know, a part of that is triage. A part of that's really understanding what we know, what we don't know, what we think we know and really finding out how to make sure that we have all the data points needed and, and understanding what's happening. But the two biggest ways I do that is I look at the technical impacts and I want to understand what the business and operational impacts are. Mm, mm. 
The first thing I'm going to do, and sometimes the easier one to define, is the technical impacts. You might have alerts, you might have certain errors you're seeing, you might have a, a, a screenshot of something that was um, sent to you by a threat actor, something along those lines. Sometimes those are very easy to define. Now, the one that's a little bit harder at times, depending on the size of your business and the different products and services you have, is understanding what the business and operational impacts are. And I mean, mm -hmm. what they really are. Is this mm -hmm. a critical function of your business? Can you guys operate with or without this? Because that's really going to dictate how you're going to manage the incident and what, you know, what timelines you're looking at to try and restore service and how long you have to really dig into it. Um, and really, there's different people you need at the table for those conversations, but they're very intertwined. So it's really understanding what technology supports those critical functions in your business. And once you have an understanding of that in the in the context of an incident, I know what my marching orders are. I understand what the technical issue is. I understand what the impact of the business is. Okay, let's get going to try and fix it. The next stage I would look at would probably be the actual remediation of the incident. I know this is once we identify what the problems are, we have to fix them and we have to contain them. And that's really focused on remediating the threat, making sure that the that the bad guy's out, the technology problem has been resolved, whatever it may be that be that is impeding your critical business function. Let's make sure that that's no longer in the way. Now, a lot of people think of that remediation as being very, very technical focused. We need, you know, you know, white hat hackers in there blocking things, but there's a lot of things regular business owners can do that are that would be just as important as you know what I did for lower, large organizations and I do for small businesses. A big part of that is communicating. If mm -hmm. during an incident there is the dreaded churn that <laughs> happens quite a bit, and that really? was probably one of the most impactful things that I would have in my career, Jeff, during an incident is that huh. there wasn't proper communication or people weren't getting it. They spin up. Uh, other investigations, they think they have an idea, but it's not just to internal stakeholders. You have to let your partners know what's going on. You have to let your your key suppliers know what's going on. If essentially you are dead in the water, right? And you need to know about potential impacts. And it's one of those things that when done well, can really, really help improve that incident timeline. If done poorly, can have really, really significant impacts to the um, length of an outage, the impacts of an outage, and really a lot of the reputational impacts surrounding as well. And then the last thing I always think of when I'm going in an incident, you know, okay, we've identified the scope. We know the bad guy's out. The technical service has been restored. We think we are in a good spot. Well, how do we turn the lights back on? And how do we do it responsibly? And how do we do it safely? Um, you know, perhaps it was a, a restoration from a backup that helped us get there. Do we, can our systems handle um, our, our customers' you know, needs when they're back online? Can we do some quick testing? And really also focusing into, um, you know, again, that communication aspect. How do our customers know that we're back online? Well, do we have to capture as well immediately following that incident? What logs might we need? Um, you know, so as you turn that switch back on, are you doing everything that you need to make sure it doesn't happen again? Understanding root cause and really looking at hey, let's capture what gaps we identified throughout this incident to make sure that we can resolve them. So what I heard you say is you have uh, th basically three phases that you, you, you look into, Rob, or you, you react to is uh, you have to identify what the situation looks like. You have to figure out how to start to remediate, how to stop the bleeding of sorts. And then you go into a recovery mode. And in terms of the recovery mode itself, 
What are the biggest challenges in the recovery phase itself? It really depends on, I would say, the organization. A lot of that comes into internal makeup and understanding what your critical functions are. One of the worst scenarios that you can have is if you have an outage that is impacting multiple services or multiple functions within a service, and maybe there's there are different operating groups in a business. Realistically, everyone's going to think that their function or their piece of technology is the one that has to be focused on and brought up first. And there's only so many resources to go around during an incident. I think some people forget that at times, right? I mean, if there's if you have 15 critical systems, but you only have two people to have access to them, then that's really going to, you have to consider that as you're trying to bring things up and restore service. So for me, one of the biggest difference makers in that recovery stage is clearly defining what technology needs to be brought online for you to function as a business. Those core assets, those digital crown jewels, we got to focus on those first and then bring up supporting elements afterwards. And it sounds very simple, Jeff, um, understanding what those critical functions in your business are. But when done right, it can make a big, big difference. And again, when done wrong, it really can cause complications and really extend everything you're doing. Extend the outage, extend the impacts and extend you know, the financial impacts to your business as well. What about the, because uh, I know that uh, when you try to restore to your last good backup, has that been a challenge for you in the past in terms of finding where to start to recover? Most certainly. And I think a lot of, you know, there's one thing that I, I kind of laugh at, right? You know, I, I've heard a lot of people say, hey, we take, you know, we take backups, you know, every month, every week. Right. And often I ask them, well, when's the last time you tried to restore from there? And mm-hmm. a lot of people's faces go white, you know, and it, it's, it's, good to have um those great habits but you also need to be able to practice those as well right and it's only um a good restorative action if you know it's going to (laughs) work right well when you first uh talked about the uh the identification phase you had the technical impacts and you had the business and the people impacts kind of you kind of broke it into business people and technology type impacts and how it aligns with the underlying how tech aligns with the business impact and how people affect that communications to the people not just within the company but to your partners and your customers how do they communicate traditionally is it through emails or phone or how does it work usually you know sometimes you know i bet you i probably sent somewhere around the line about fifty thousand, you know status updates and and i bet you jeff most of them consisted of about seven lines there was essentially the one line that at the top that kind of stated the impacts and where we were at and you know five bullet points Here's five bullet points that kind of provide a status of where we're at, what we're doing, and what our next steps are. And then probably the most powerful line that you can put at the end is, you know, hey, we'll update you within X period of time unless the status of the situation changes. Something as simple as that and and identifying who would need to know if we had a major event can really, really help. And it doesn't have to be every half hour. It could be every six hours, once a day, whatever it may be. But people can expect that coming in. You're going to save a bunch of phone calls, things of that nature happening. And it's one of the most powerful things that you can do in an incident is make sure that you and your stakeholders and and everyone that is involved in your business is on the same page. Now, you're going to have to understand that there's going to be different levels of of what you can say to certain people. And you obviously want to be, um, you know, don't give anything away about the actual incident itself. But you can most certainly talk about what the operational impacts are. 
And in my experience, if you're keeping those stakeholders updated during an incident, letting them know what the status is, it's going to save you a lot of grief, a lot of phone calls, and, and really show to those people, hey, we're invested, we're keeping you updated, we appreciate your your patience during this time, and, and it really can get a lot more people on your side rather than thinking more negatively towards you or even worse, being in the dark on what's going on. Because as we've seen, you know, if you're not saying anything to your customers or your partners, chances yeah. are that it's not going to go over well. Yeah, and then people will just uh, fill in the blanks. If there's uh, silence, they'll fill in the blanks, and that uh, that's dangerous. Most certainly. So do you have any good scenario, I mean, like actual scenarios that you can tell us about without, you know, obviously disclosing anything uh, specifically about a company, but can you walk us through an incident? Well, I would be curious to understand <laughs> that and lessons learned and how you, uh, how you took care of the lessons learned at the end. Sure. And, you know, if I'm, you know, just thinking of the audience and, and I know on the news quite a bit, we hear about ransomware attacks and, and a lot of people, you know, I think can somewhat imagine that scenario. You come walking in and again, your screen's froze. It's asking, asking for a bit of money. But I think maybe one of the, the best stories that I can maybe tell to talk about what the, you know, current landscape is like for those, you know, small, medium business and small, medium enterprise um, business leaders would be around business email compromise. And and I say that because it is one of the most simplest attacks to execute. And, um, you know, I'll tell you a bit of story. Obviously, you're going to leave a few things out. But let's just say this was a, a professional firm and um, someone that had a, a very big deal that they were closing. And mm -hmm. during the pandemic, there was, uh, and this person was in an industry where, where folks are, you know, are, are typically kind of contractors and, and shift from company to company. And this individual relied on their personal email a lot for business functions. Now, that's usually a bad habit to have. But in this particular case, during the pandemic, he at some point, he clicked on something he shouldn't have and granted uh, access or gave away his credentials to his personal email account. Now, mm. This person didn't do anything immediately. They kind of sat there and waited and said, you know, heck, this person's doing some deals. I see a lot of money kind of going back and forth and sat there for about six months. Now, in that six month period, um, things were opening up out of the pandemic. And this particular um, professional decided to book a family vacation to Mexico and you know, in the in that email confirmation is flight numbers, everything else that will be included. And, you know, it's not hard to find those. So what this threat actor did was waited until that person got to the airport, was the, the plane was confirmed to be in the air. That's a simple Google search. And generally speaking, he figured that or the threat actor figured I got about five hours where this person's probably not going to be checking their email and went into action. Now, during a very short period of time, that threat actor got a hold of the person in the organization that did payments and said, hey, we can close this deal right now. We're going to save 20%, but we got to get the money here right now. It's got to be there within the hour. Here is the mailing address. Please send the wire. I'll send you the completed contract. We're good to go. Now, I will, I'll pause oh, wow. there in the story, Jeff, because I think one of the things that's really important for people to realize is always look for that sense of urgency. If it's very, very good news or it's very, very bad news or something, an opportunity that could be fading away, take a second 
and and be a little bit cautious because threat mm-hmm. actors thrive on that and that urgency and and your willingness to do something quickly if it's for the greater good. So this person, the threat actor, you know, the the, the professional person's in the air. The threat actor got the wire sent, and when he landed, basically saw all these emails saying, "Hey, what's going on? We haven't received the contract." You know, why haven't we, why don't we see the bank statement, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this was seven figures, Jeff, and it was gone. And anyone that knows the wires environment, if you don't get to that within a very short period of time, it's probably gone. And unfortunately, this was. Now, in that particular case, we got kind of engaged weeks after, and there wasn't a lot we could do. Now, that sounds horrible we can't get your money back but realistically the damage had been done at that point so our focus really shifted to kind of shutting the front door and let's identify what went wrong in this scenario and make sure that it's it's restored and that it can't happen again and i think that also highlights that you know if you want to take action and hopefully have a good outcome that's where the preparation comes in making right. sure you have that that person that you can call making sure you have that response plan because time is of the essence when there are you know other financial institutions money involved or outages involved do you find because you work with both small and large uh you and kevin at white two correct you 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 work with uh, large organizations but you also work with small mid-sized businesses and do you ever get the sense or the comments that oh it'll never happen to me or kind of that attitude? Most certainly. Um, and I think maybe even the scarier attitude that that I hear sometimes is, well, I have cyber insurance, so I'm covered. Um, uh-huh. To me, that's almost even scarier <laughs> because if, to me, that shows that you're aware of the threat and you think that's a particular safety net. In most cases, if people th- you know say, hey, it won't happen to me, well, I'm a, you know, pick an industry. I'm, I'm a Google search away to finding a major outage or cyber attack that happened on on that kind of business, right? So in most cases, I I can convince folks that, hey, you know, this is a possibility that it could happen to you. It's making sure that people are taking, you know, an active approach to, to, you know, remediating those threats as opposed to a passive one. And, you know, insurance is there for a reason. Like, yes, if you're if your house and your your business burnt to the ground and you lost everything, you know, yes, there's some compensation involved, but wouldn't it be great if your business didn't burn to the ground first, right? So that's really the mindset that we have to really get people to understand. Um, and and that would be the most challenging thing that I would see um, as opposed to the, hey, it won't happen to me. So it's, an incident happens, Rob. And yep. who does... You know, the, the customer call first or the uh, the the affected party uh, call first. Now, if you are someone that that does have cyber insurance, um, you need to make sure that you are doing everything by the book as per that insurance policy, because if whatever happens right immediately as you call someone, you need to make sure that you're doing it within your cyber insurer's guidelines to make sure you can take advantage of that. So that'd be step one. Step yep. two it would be hopefully you have a resource to find in an incident response plan for someone to come in from a technical standpoint to help guide you through the decisions that are that are going to be made. Now, there's also other people that you would probably need to make second, third, and fourth phone calls to, your legal team, 
Um, you might need someone from finance. If there's ransom involved, you're going to want whoever is running operations would be kind of that second phone call. Now, if you don't have that relationship with a security provider before an incident happens, you're in a very tough spot because at that point you're kind of relying on Googling someone, which is not great, not great at all times. Maybe you are, are a bit stuck and having to go to a large firm and, and for a small, medium business, you know, to, to bring in one of the big five consulting firms is probably not cost feasible um, mm-hmm. and, and for the scenario. So, you know, it's really relying on, you know, do you have a managed service provider? Do they have someone they deal with? Does your lawyer perhaps know someone? So if you don't have, you know, those first initial phone calls to make, you need to look through those trusted people in your network that may have someone that you can rely upon. Now, the absolute best way to do this is to investigate that and build a relationship before an incident happens. Get someone that understands technology and cyber risk on your side. You know, one of the comparisons I like to give is, you know, businesses don't think twice about having an accountant or a lawyer or, you know, an HR professional, you know, as part of their team. Mm -hmm. You need someone that understands technology risk and how to navigate not only you know an incident but what comes afterwards as part of your leadership team and it doesn't have to be someone full-time um there's a lot of ways that you can get through through fractional or on-demand services to make Mm -hmm. sure you have that person available and i can't stress that enough that you know everything goes a lot smoother and you're in a lot better position to respond by having those very simple things done before an incident happens well, Rob, this has been a fascinating discussion. Are there any final thoughts you can leave with our audience, things that they could do immediately to uh, uh, you know, put them in a better position to be prepared for uh, maybe the worst day they'll have professionally? Yeah, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you one maybe action and then and one thing to consider. So the action yeah. I would say is that, you know, we're seeing in statistics and, and they change quite a bit, but the vast majority of ransomware attacks are happening to systems that have patches or vulnerabilities that are over two years old. Mm. And I think that's a very telling story is that, Mm -hmm. you know, there isn't regular maintenance. There's a very, very simple things that can be done to help, you know, remediate risk. So anyone that is looking at, you know, what are the simple things that I can start doing? We'll start looking at that asset management program, you know, making sure that you understand what digital devices you have. Understand, are they getting patches? Are they getting the basic maintenance that they need? And, you know, that's one stat that I would say that really can, you know, drives to an action for me is that, hey, we know that there's systems that are not getting their regular maintenance and they're not getting patched. And that's where guys are taking advantage. So that'd be one direct action. Now, the one thing I would like to maybe for folks to consider is there's a recent uh, report out by IBM that kind of you know details that on average it takes 277 days to detect and contain and remediate a threat actor who's in a system. Now, mm. that may seem like a long time, and it is. Now, what I do to try and paint a picture of that is, is what happens if somebody was sitting in your office for nine months? They sat right next to you. They listened into every conversation. They saw Mm. every keystroke. Mm. They would, you know, they took part as the leader of your business sitting next to you. What would they learn about your organization? Mm. And what would they learn about your organization that they could use against you? Right. And 
that's where I want, you know, people to kind of consider because that's the current, you know, landscape that we're sitting in is that people are taking their time in many cases, gathering the information that they need, depending on the on the industry or the target they're hitting, you know, and in many cases, then they're hitting the kind of ransomware switch, right? Once they've been, you know, gotten what they've gotten out of the scenario. So, you know, it can happen to anyone. It's it's very basic maintenance that can help prevent a lot of those attacks. And you really need to consider the impacts of not just a ransomware or an event like that, but what would be the impacts to your organization, your business, your IP, if someone was sitting there for that period of time and and learning about your organization. Rob, thank you so much. Appreciate your insights and uh, most grateful for your contributions to uh, the Safe House Initiative. Thank you very much. Honor to be a part. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Really appreciate it. A big thanks to Rob Stewart of White Took for his support and contribution to the Safe House Initiative. We greatly appreciate his vision and expertise in helping us to better understand how to respond in the event of a cyber attack, one of the key NIST controls. That's our podcast for today. I'm Jeff Edwards for the Safe House Initiative. Thanks for joining us and remember, be safe, be resilient, and be kind to each other. For more information on the Safe House Initiative, please use your mobile device to scan the QR code on the screen. Send us an email at safehouseinitiative.org at gmail.com or visit us on our website, safehouseinitiative.org. We look forward to hearing from you.